This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, the founder and president of Environmental Progress, Michael Schellenberger, talks about apocalyptic environmentalism, and he discusses some solutions on how to address environmental issues. He's interviewed by Andrew Revkin, author and Columbia University director of the Earth Institute Initiative on Communication and Sustainability. This episode from earlier this year. Michael, it's great to see you again. It's been a while. Good to see you too, Andy. How are you faring in this uh, pandemic time? A little cabin fever, I must admit. <laughs> I'm eager to, I never thought I'd say it, but I'm eager to get back to traveling again. I was getting sick of it before the pandemic, and now I'm like eager to get out of California. So how are you? Um, pretty good. You know, we're all doing what we can to get through a moment that even for those, like even the movie Contagion, which supposedly presaged what was going to happen and something like this really didn't capture the full scope of what's going to, what's unfolding. I, I guess that gets to my first question about the book, which is Apocalypse Never. It's a very definitive statement, unless there's nuance in there that I miss. It kind of implies um, certainty in a world of interlaced I describe our current situation as kind of like tripwires and landmines that are sort of interlaced in ways that are complex and largely unpredictable. We've created a complex system. So are you confident when you say apocalypse never? And of course that depends on the definition of apocalypse. Yeah, well, thanks, Andy. So yeah, I mean, the argument of the book is that climate change is real, but it's not the end of the world. It's not even our most serious environmental problem. As you know, I've been a climate activist for 20 years, environmental activist for 30. Um, You know, I I see what I'm trying to do here is similar to like, if you're a cancer doctor and there's like, and a bunch of people are saying that everybody's gonna die of cancer or billions of people are gonna die of cancer in 10 years, going, wait a second, (laughs) you know, I care about this issue and I don't like to see that level of extremism, alarmism and exaggeration. So, you know, look, I mean, are there scenarios in which you can, you can imagine climate change destroying human civilization? Sure, you can, you can imagine that. There's no scientific basis for it. By contrast, there was a very strong scientific basis for imagining the current pandemic. In fact, the warnings of the pandemic were eerily prescient, including coming from a coronavirus, coming from poor hygiene from right. Chinese Uh, small farmers and markets. So it's not to say it's impossible, um, but it's to sort of say, you know, let's get our, let's get our understanding of it straight. I mean, I think one of the most shocking things, most people don't know, and this is where I think the news media deserves a lot of blame for this. Deaths from natural disasters have declined 90% over the last 100 years. They've declined 80 to 90% over the last 40 years. There is no scenario in any of the IPCC reports, and I've now read them all, for that number to reverse itself. So there's really no basis for thinking that we're going to see, I mean, you know, we, we see people like Bill McKibben saying it's the biggest problem we've ever faced. It's kind of like, really? I mean, that would imply that we have some mechanism for the death toll to reverse itself or for damages from extreme weather events to increase or for there to be some collapse in food production. Well, we see we're now producing 25% more food than we need And according to every major report and just kind of basic understanding, those food surpluses should continue to rise so long as countries gain access to fertilizer, 
factories, uh, fertilizer, tractors, irrigation, and the other elements of modern agriculture. So, yeah, I mean, never say never. I mean, certainly, you know, look, aliens could invade, you know. Um, uh, yeah. There could be some cosmic problem we're not aware of. So it's not to say never, but but to say, you know, apocalypse, you know, and certainly I think that the, the title is also meant as a bit of a uh, uh, defiant, it's, it's, it's asserting let's never have an apocalypse as much as it is saying there will never be an apocalypse. Yeah, so that gets it. I guess the goal is to um, prod and kind of challenge, get, get a new conversation going. Um, although I do wonder sometimes, um, and I wonder this about all books. You know, one reason I, I've written some books, including one that just came out this year, but I see the form as kind of brittle. And it also ends up being a form where you generally see the books that are most visible in the, in the public sphere most are ones that are at the edges of the argument. Uh, you say many of us have, have you, you talk about so many of us have bought into this environmental emergency. Well, that, you know, even a book like Bill McKibbins will sell 100,000 or that's a good one. So is that, I think most people are actually not bought into this or otherwise we would have listened to that end of the argument. And I wonder sometimes if, if books of, that argument, apocalypse never, apocalypse now, are kind of basically doing the thing that doesn't need to be done. They're kind of arguing through the edges. I know, you know, there's a lot in your book that I like and I embrace, and you know, in my writing, I went from 1988, where this was my cover story on global warming in 1988. Talk about meltdown apocalypse cover right. with, with tobacco ads on the back to a much more nuanced reporting through the last uh, 10 or 15 years, um, which got at some of these basic underlying points you make in the book. And you could, uh, you know, what you say about energy density and you look at the landscape, what can happen with renewables versus what, what theoretically could happen with nuclear. Um, it is no contest in terms of gigawatt hours uh, or terawatt hours, right. which is what we need. Um, and yet, the book I would love to see, maybe you could articulate how you move from the prod to uh, sort of a roadmap. You mm -hmm. know, nuclear, the roadmap for nuclear is almost as fantastically improbable as the roadmap for, roadmap for rapid uh, renewables expansion. So what is your, what is your sort of clarion call to um, the world on how you would actually get that done? Sure. Thanks for the question. I mean, I think so. So obviously titles are titles. You only get one or two words for a title. The book is basically a defense of human civilization. It's a defense of human development and human progress. It points out that sure, air pollution rises as nations industrialize and urbanize, but we also see now that carbon emissions peaked in Britain, France, and Germany in the mid seventies. They peaked in the United States nearly 15 years ago. Um, there's every reason to believe that they're gonna peak in developing economies within, I don't know, 10 years. Some people think they've peaked already and they're gonna go down. So temperatures are almost un, almost uh, very unlikely to get above three degrees over pre-industrial levels. Obviously there's a bunch of uncertainty there, but remember the Nobel Prize winner for his work on climate change, William Nordhaus said the optimal level was four degrees, meaning that was the level where costs and benefits of fossil fuels were properly accounted for. Now. I don't rely, I don't actually cite that in my book and I don't really rely on models. I'm not crazy about models, 
But the overall direction and the trends I'm pointing to are incredibly positive. So humankind's biggest use of land is for pasture for meat production. It peaked in the 2000s. Sorry, it peaked 20 years ago and it's declined an area almost the size of Alaska. And that's just, we should celebrate that. Human resilience to natural disasters, we should celebrate that. Declining infant mortality, rising life expectancy. These are all amazing trends. Now, I also point out in Apocalypse Never that that is not the end of the story. There's some very serious environmental problems we, we still need to deal with. So I point to the fact that one to two billion people still use wood for fuel. One of the biggest threats to wild animals is that we continue to eat them. Um, right. And that goes for, goes for wild fish. And that many of the things that environmental groups have advocated are actually bad for the environment. So renewables require three to 400 times more land than natural gas plants or nuclear plants. Now on the question of, I think my, my, my views have been really badly misrepresented by some people who I think actually know better. People have said, Michael, you're just insisting it's all nuclear. That's simply not true. In fact, in Apocalypse Never, I defend the right of Indonesia to burn coal because burning coal is better than burning wood. I defend uh, fracking for natural gas because natural gas is better than coal. People say to me, Michael, are you pro-natural gas or are you anti-natural gas? Wrong question. I'm in favor of natural gas when it replaces coal. I'm against it when it replaces nuclear. Now, yes, in my view, eventually humans are going to be 100% nuclear. When will that be? Could be as early as 2100, probably not going to be, probably more like 2200. But it's no more ridiculous to think we'll be 100% nuclear than to think we'll be 100% fossil fuels. We're at 90% almost fossil fuels in terms of primary energy. So I don't think it's that far-fetched. I mean, remember, nuclear, first and foremost, is a technology we use to make the most powerful weapons that humans have ever made. It's the ultimate weapon. That's the primary use of nuclear energy. It's always been, it's, for 75 years, that's what it's been. We then had this powerful spin-off technology, which are nuclear power plants, which are the only way to basically shrink humankind's energy footprint to close to zero. We're, I mean, even the uranium mining is underground. It takes a tiny amount of land for nuclear. So I don't see it as far-fetched at all that the world is going to turn back to nuclear, particularly at this moment when there's clearly a reversion back to nation states, to national identity, where backlash against global globalization and neoliberalism. So, I mean, for me, and I'm testifying in front of Congress in a couple of hours on this issue, for me, the, a far bigger concern than climate change is the future of nuclear energy. Right now, we're ceding nuclear energy to the Chinese and Russians. We've seen over the last 10 months that the Chinese are clearly in the midst of a genocide against their Muslim ethnic minority, and the Russians, the Russian president has declared himself dictator for life. So as soon as a country is building nuclear plants with Russia or China, they are in the sphere of influence of Russia and China. And that's, I always point out, the line between soft power and hard power runs directly through nuclear energy. So for me, nuclear is special and different in that sense from oil or gas or coal, and that it always has had this dual use. And I do think once we come to grips with what that dual use is and remind ourselves of it, there will be a turn back towards nuclear in the West. One of the good arguments for the U.S. staying involved in nuclear energy work is um, that I've heard after Fukushima particularly was that international safeguards and standards are negotiated in ways that are only you can only meaningfully be part of if you're actually involved in the industry. So that, that to me, is another argument for staying involved. But it's also it's so... 
you know, I've written a lot about this too, as you know, and I uh, kept saying, um, kind of like what you were saying a minute ago about a more nuanced uh, menu. I, I was saying, you know, it's easy to have a no nukes march. It's easy to have a yes nukes march. It's harder to have a some nukes march. Like who marches with a placard that says some nukes? And, and that, I think, is a way to look, look at the future in the United States. Um, Cuomo, you know, I, live, I live 10 miles from Indian Point, which is closing. It's closed. It's shutting down. It's shut down. It's getting shut down. Uh, my wife and I disagree over whether it should have stayed operating. I, I wanted it to stay operating. Uh, Cuomo, for political reasons, said it was too close to New York City. He, he really conceived what I think of as a some nukes policy, that uh, upstate plants where the economy is struggling most, he supports and, and has included those um, uh, subsidies, essentially, and the downstate one isn't. I wonder, what's the next step for you, given what we just said about uh, arguing from the edges, then where's the middle? The middle isn't always right, but where is the point where you can start to build an American energy future that has some of the aspects you call for in the book? How does that come about? Yeah, well, thanks, Andy. I mean, I, I, I think that um, the, the idea that the United States should compete on energy, I, still, I think is the right one. I mean, so you see countries like Russia and UAE building nuclear plants to replace their combustion of natural gas, partly so they can export natural gas, partly so that they can become leaders in building nuclear power plants, which is an important export product as well. My view of nuclear, and I articulated in Apocalypse Never, is very different from most pro-nuclear people. I think that the current technology is basically fine. In fact, it's better than fine. We've been developing it for nearly 60 years. It's a, um, it, we have a lot of experience with the current water-cooled designs. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think what is still, we're still dealing with the trauma and the shock of having created such a radical technology. So I think some people go, my gosh, nuclear is so old at 75 years. It's like, no, no, this technology is going to be with us for thousands of years, unless the aliens give us their anti-gravity technology. But unless that happens, nuclear energy is, the most revolutionary technology and it's shocking in its power and obviously in its military applications. So my view is just that people need to really see nuclear for what it is and, and stop adding things to it. Like this idea that nuclear waste could leak, couldn't leak because we're talking about solid metal fuel rods that really that's the main event is just a change in public consciousness. So we're starting to see it. I look to Britain, it's considering building six full-size French nuclear reactors. It's already building two of them. The next four would be standardized. It's doing it mostly for national security reasons, not exactly military, but because Britain's an island and it depends on imported natural gas. My view is that if the United States comes back to nuclear energy, it will be because it recognizes the threat that China and Russia pose to the dominance, to dominating nuclear energy construction around the world. I will say just in my defense, in terms of moderation, you know, you'll note that one of the characters, one of the heroines, most of the, many, maybe most of the heroines in my book are women and, and women of color. But one of them is Zion Lights, who was a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. I end the book by noting that in my conversation with her, she told me she was pro-nuclear. And basically two weeks before Apocalypse Never was released, I ended up hiring her as my British director. And so now she's 
really running operations for us in Britain. And I think that's a testament to the fact that Apocalypse Never does articulate a moderate path towards expanded natural gas and nuclear solutions to climate change, which frankly, Republicans have always been fine with. And even now, I think most Democrats, um, at least most Democratic leaders, when pressed on it, would agree that these are two fuels that we need to deal with climate change. So how much of the resistance that you have faced and that um, many others who look at the portfolio of energy options you would need to limit global warming and have to have nuclear on the mix, how much of you, of what you see in the, that counter argument from the green, sort of conventional greens, like those who wanted a green new deal with no, no, without the word clean in it, you know, so it was just renewable. Um, a lot of what I see in their views is really about worldview. It's about governance, it's about control, distributed capacity as opposed to centralized, capitalized capacity. Is that really the enemy of your argument more than any of the logic or numbers? That's a great question. Well, first, I mean, I just think we have to just reflect on the fact that there's been a huge sea change in public attitudes, at least elite attitudes, as expressed in, on news media and social media. Just three years ago, the dominant idea from the left was 100% renewables, as proposed by Mark Jacobson from Stanford. Now, Mark Jacobson is largely discredited, in part because he sued our mutual acquaintance, Ken Caldera, and others, authors of this famous Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences paper, now the Democratic plan, the climate plan, the Biden plan does not call for 100% renewables. It calls for 100% zero carbon. Huge, that's huge. I mean, just in the, in the long tradition of anti-nuclear advocacy on the left, that's a huge shift. Now to the issue of why, because much of the reason I wanted to write Apocalypse Never was, I was, I was this particular question, I, you've seen me wrestling with it for several years. Why, if the left is so alarmist about climate change, is it against nuclear energy? And why would it want renewables, which have such a large impact on land use? That question was driving me bonkers for almost a decade. I feel like I finally got to the bottom of it. Obviously, one big part of this is just fear of the bomb. But the bomb doesn't explain it all because obviously, progressives are much more concerned about the bomb than conservatives. So it can't be a uniform, irrational fear that's sort of in all of us. It's clearly ideologically motivated, and it comes from this tradition, just to introduce a bit of jargon, uh, Malthusianism, which is based on the ideas of the 18th century British economist Thomas Malthus, who said we would always overpopulate the earth and result in famines. Malthus was not disproved once. He's been disproven every year since he was writing. Obviously, if, there, if he was right, there wouldn't be nearly 8 billion people on earth. We're obviously, our environmental problems are almost all a result of having been too successful as a species, right? We eat and take up too much of nature. And so I try to get at what's behind this idea that civilization must collapse, that there's something fundamentally wrong with the way we live. And I look at three factors that are the last three chapters of the book, money, power, and religion and ultimately conclude that the reason we see secular people, more than traditionally religious people, gravitate towards apocalyptic environmentalism is that it is serving the same needs that religion has traditionally served in terms of providing a kind of spiritual transcendence, a sense of immortality, and a feeling of being heroic 
as a climate activist or as a vegetarian or whatever it might be. And I think we see that with the power of the morality. So what's interesting to me is that there's no interest on the part of advocates of the Green New Deal of learning from past efforts to have a Green New Deal, including the one that I co-founded in the early 2000s called the New Apollo Project, partly inspired by your writings. Um, there's no interest in learning about the history, and I don't think that's coincidental. I think that really what's being advocated is a kind of morality, and a morality is ahistorical. In other words, if it's truly good, it should be good at all times and places. And so I see what's happening in terms of advocacy on climate as a religious movement. I think, you know, once you, if it kind of looks like a religious movement, talks like a religion, it's a good bet that it is a religion. And of course, I found a bunch of scholarship to support that. So for me, that's what's driving this. And I think the anxiety about the global system, the sense in which globalization is coming to an end is driving a lot of that anxiety, particularly among progressives and particularly among the elite. And by the way, do you feel that globalization is coming to an end? I don't think, I don't think globalization is coming to an end. I think that the global system is in crisis. I think every major institution in our society is in crisis. I mean, I was just reflecting the other night that the, the thing that everybody believed about the pandemic in the first few weeks was that washing your hands is the most important, but we really didn't need to wear masks. Now the thinking is that masks are of essential importance and washing your hands, it's like, sure, but we don't really know of any cases of fomite transfer, which is the transfer on surfaces. World Health Organization, I don't think from bad intentions, I just think they're a discredited organization. I think the White House is a discredited institution. I honestly, I'm sorry to say this because I know it's your former employer. I think the New York Times is, does not have the credibility it once had. It reads like the Guardian. It reads like the nation. It doesn't read like a newspaper. I mean, I'm struck, Andy, I'm sure you are too. How many environment stories only have one side of the story? I just read a Bloomberg piece that quotes our friends Jesse Jenkins and Leah Stokes. It doesn't quote anybody critical of renewables at all. I mean, that's standard now. So these institutions are, I think, in crisis. They're in a crisis of credibility and trust. I don't think that means the institutions are going to go away. I think what it means is that those institutions are going to need new leaders who have a different worldview, who actually are more comfortable expressing the fact that we don't know if masks might work or not, but you might want to wear them. We're worried about them being, you know, the real issue was they were worried about their, you know, not having enough masks. But instead of just saying that, there was a kind of some manipulation. So, so I don't think the global, I don't think globalization is coming to an end. I do think that nations are going to get back in touch with the fact that we're all competing with each other in some essential way, that we're all economic nationalists, I think, without, without kind of even thinking about it. But, and that these institutions are ultimately going to need to be kind of regenerated by new leadership and new ideas. Let's talk about uh, climate diplomacy briefly. And I do want to get to ecology and um, uh, Vaclav Schmiel and Jesse Asabel, a couple of people we both have learned heaps from. Uh, but um, something you just said brought to mind um, a concept that I focused on when the Keystone Pipeline argument was happening. And I was writing pieces saying, from a macroeconomic lens, saying, as you know, well, fighting that pipeline is fine, but if you do that, the oil, oil will find its way, right? And uh, I was being punished pretty aggressively for that, as you've been punished for some of what you've said. Um, and I was Googling for uh, words like on cooperation, can't like-minded people with a goal 
a sustainable human experience on the planet. Uh, acknowledge diversity of pathways. Can, is that possible, right? And I, I found, I was Googling response diversity, and there was this paper, a 2003 paper by Thomas Elmquist in Stockholm, saying that ecosystems that are resilient are those that have, it's not the number of species, it's the number of responses that a species a function in the ecosystem has to the stress. So it was like, to me, that was like a really cool moment. It was, well, response diversity is adaptive. Basically, you think about the human adventure. You've got China with its view, the United States, Europe, we all have different sensibilities, geographies, histories. And that, that, that kind of scrum that results is fundamentally adaptive which gets to your point about a uniformity, sort of the, uh, the, the danger of having a uniformity or having a uniformitarian menu. And if you're not with us, you're against us. Uh, and the, weirdly, when I was writing about the climate, the Paris Climate Accord, I realized that actually it, it is, it, it has all the attributes you would want. It's plastic, it's adaptive, it's not determinative, all the things that some yelled at it for being weak are its attributes. It creates a hundred year landscape of change and conversation and sharing. And I guess that makes, that's the kind of thing that makes me op optimistic about the future. And I wonder how well that fits with your articulation of a pathway of how to think as an individual, how to act as a country. Um, does response diversity make sense? Yeah, it's a great observation, Andy. I mean, you know my view on the United Nations. I just don't think diplomats of the United Nations or any treaty will will have much influence over the decisions that nations make about food and energy supply. I think the decisions that That's nations make about food and energy supply are based on local geography, but also, you know, referencing Smeal and Ossible, we think it's, I believe there is a clear trend from energy dilute fuels like wood and dung and coal towards more energy dense ones like natural gas and, and nuclear. But on your broader point, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, everything I complain about, I can find something very positive in the society. So the New York Times and Bloomberg and, the, and most elite media now are very one-sided. At the same time, we have Twitter and we get most of us don't even, I don't even go to the, wall, the New York Times anymore. I just go to Twitter. And as a activist and as a journalist, I've taken started writing a column for Forbes. Um, it's, um, I love my relationship with Forbes. I've had some challenges there. Um, but nonetheless, I'm able to publish articles that are much more widely read than environmental articles in the New York Times. And I know because I can see the, the traffic on them. So I can get a million or two million views, even though I don't work at the New York Times, just because I'm writing about things that people care about. Similarly, on the one hand, it's an incredibly polarized society we live in. We're left and right are incredibly polarized. On the other hand, there's just a bunch of stuff that are not clearly left or right issues right now. So I think nuclear is one of them. Not clear that that's a, traditionally was conceived as a Republican, well, traditionally it was a bipartisan technology, then it became a Republican technology. Now you have another Democrat, Democrats who support it. Housing is another issue where I don't know, is it, is it conservative or liberal to be NIMBY? Because in California, we have both liberal and conservative NIMBYs. You know, I think there's other elements of that, and I'm very interested in them, where it's not obvious that some things are more liberal or more conservative than others. 
and how much is just being determined by by partisan polarization. So I think there's actually more space opening up, and I think we're at the beginning of it, and I credit social media for a lot of this. You know, it's a, my view of the social media is a little bit like Plato's discussion of of medicine, which is that, is it a poison? Is it a medicine? It's both. And it really depends on how you use it and what the dose is. So I think we're in a really interesting time. I think that potentially social media is making, is kind of creating some collective madness, but I also think some amount of, of madness can be very creative. Yeah. And I do obviously as well, given what I'm doing at the earth Institute now building a, an initiative on how do you make information matter in this new information environment and matter meaning that even that's a question, of course, right? How many species? How hot? They're all questions. There, there are no simple answers. Um, let's get into ecology. You just spent a big chunk of the book on uh, uh, the Amazon, where you know we both spend time, and um, on um, uh, extinction headlines versus realities. And there too, I'm with you on the. Uh, sixth extinction being much more a hypothesis that we'll only really know in a million or 10 million years, uh, and which is obviously too, too long a time scale to really uh, uh, care about actually right now. And every extinction the planet had made it more diverse, as you say in the book. Um, but at the same time, Eli, there was a section on Ed Wilson's early space uh, species area concept, a very simple formula that proved wrong in terms of taking a island style extinction to a planetary level. But Ed's recent book, um, Half Earth, I kind of liked it. I don't like the specificity of half. But what I liked about it was this concept of if you leave room for nature, nature will, will do stuff. It will be itself. Um, even here in the Hudson Valley, right a mile from where I live, there's an old quarry that's now festooned hardly recognizable forest landscape that just 50 years ago was a quarry. So, I, and I, I, I wonder if there's, um, I won't say middle ground, but like if you had to specify, I'm not sure you have this in the book, like how much, what does conservation mean in the 21st century? Maybe that's a, you have a section on that, but if you could articulate now for you, what would be a conservation success look like? Yeah, that's great. And let me, I'm going to make one observation before I answer totally, which is that two claims that I made that are very controversial, but what I think are scientifically accurate are we are not causing a mass extinction and climate change is not making natural disasters worse. The response to both of them was the form, took the form of hypotheses um, that, were, that I think were dressed up as science. So, for example, humans could cause a sixth extinction. Okay, sure, but that's First of all, that's a, that's, that's a possibility, but that's not what's happening now. And then I've heard from other people, including some of the people that have criticized me, it could be that natural disasters would have killed fewer people had there not been climate change. That's not science, that's a hypothesis. So I think that's one of the challenges we're dealing with here is that people are conflating hypothesis, which is an important part of the scientific method with scientific evidence. Well, actually on, on the latter one, it's clear that the climate has changed from the forcing of CO2. Translating that into some component of losses in a hurricane is what's impossible. But at the same right. time, it would be impossible to state categorically there is no effect 
when you know that. I mean, I, I, Michael Mann and I debated in, in Twitter space and other places. You know, he says every meteorological event has changed. What was me? And I say, well, that means the, the sunny days and the, those seasons with no tornadoes that we've had recent years, those are climate change too. But I, I think what some people have wedged, latched onto is the definitive idea that there's no role for climate change. It's just that it hasn't, it's not measurable, but in a changed climate where a storm is happening, you, it would be implicitly impossible to say climate change is not in there. Yeah, I think that the disagreement that uh, we, you and I might have, or I might have with others, may be more about what is appropriate science communication rather than what is scientific. So for example, part of the reason I wrote this book, a big part, was that the claims that billions of people will die, that Earth is dying, um, that, that, the humans, that half of the public around the world believe that climate change will make humans extinct, this is nuts, and, and it needs to be pushed back against. It's causing mental health problems. One out of five British children have nightmares of climate change. It's clearly contributing to anxiety and depression. I'm not saying it's the only reason. Let, let me give a different example. Um, I'll give another aliens example because uh, it's in the news. Um, if the president of the United States were to say, aliens are not invading the United States. If a reporter says, are aliens invading the United States? The president says, aliens are not invading the United States. That reporter could make the exact same argument against my statement, which is to say, well, I don't, Right. You can't say that for sure. We have Navy pilots who have reported close encounters with what appear to be alien spacecraft. We have, um, uh, we now have video evidence has been released and confirmed by the Pentagon. The Pentagon has a special group studying this. So how can you be sure the United States is not being invaded by aliens? Okay, so there's part of this is a philosophical problem. You can't prove a negative. But that means the burden of proof is showing. In other words, if the president of the United States wants to avoid panic, which is what was encouraged by Greta Thunberg, by the way. She said, I want you to panic. And by the way, the definition of panic is unthinking behavior. Not only think we should ever want that. If the president doesn't want to create panic, he says, aliens are not invading the United States. And he doesn't say, well, we can't be sure, but it appears to be. And if there is an alien invasion, I mean, so I think you have to explain clearly. And then if it turns out that the death toll from natural disasters reverses itself and starts going up because of climate change, because extreme events, which I acknowledge are becoming more severe in many cases, are outweighing it, then we know. But we have to have a kind of basic baseline. So that's the, I don't know, we can, yeah, yeah. I can go back to the extinctions if you want. I just wanted to. Yeah, no, and I, by the way, I agree with you. I've written, a, I was writing about the work of Lauren Bowers, who's a, a European disaster analyst, um, did a bunch of work that was in the IPCC reports and in 2010 he did a, an analysis of law this is losses the thing that I think gets conflated too much and that you do a good job of disentangling is losses in a meteorological event as a there, there's three things there's losses in a meteorological event there's changes in the meteorological event like a storm or hurricane and there's climate change and how that might change the behavior of a storm or a coastal surge and the like. And um, when you look at losses, and Roger Pilkey Jr., who's, who you defend in the book, and I've defended in the past too, Bauer, the IPCC report on extreme events, all acknowledge that point, that losses, the prime driver of losses is where and how people are settling and building. And, that, and Bauer's work recently totally supports that even for the next several decades, those who are eager to measure what's called loss and damage 
under the terms of the Paris Agreement to maybe get compensated are going to be out of luck because there's so much building and development in harm's way in implicit zones of danger that you can't you won't be able to discern that little component going forward from climate change. So yeah. that that I do feel there has to be a way forward and distinguishing between changes in the storm, the phenomenon, and changes in the losses and impacts it might have. And that, so that's, I think, you know, again, your book is a good provocation to get, to try to get to that kind of landscape. It might maybe a next step. I don't know what would be a next step if you were going to write something specifically on that point about a new way for the IPCC. I guess you said you were consulted by the IPCC to be a reviewer. I'm not sure. They're probably on the nuclear section, not on the working group two, which is that impacts part, but what would be a, is there a productive way to start to measure things differently so that we can have more sane conversations here? I mean, I, I think the IPCC's science is pretty darn good. I, I, I defend it in the book, as you know, I, I'm critical. So I'm critical of, of working group three, which is the recommendations of what to do. I'm critical of the publicity, the summary for policymakers, the press release, but I defend working group one and working group two. I think they basically do a good job. I think there's some kind of, there's some of that mealy mouth stuff, but I just kind of go, that's what you should get out of an institution like that. Um, I don't really have that big of a problem with, with the way the, I mean, I, I, like you said, I kind of defend the IPCC, um, the way they talk about extreme events. And for me, it felt like this, the hero of the story was Roger Pelkey, who I defended, but also Richard Toll, you know, who argues that this is a manageable problem and we should stop, you know, describing it as, as the road to hell, as he said. <laughs> um, so, I mean, do you, should I, I can go, I, I still want to, I'm eager to address your questions about extinction and. Yeah, you know, well, let, to go back um, to, but fine to stay on extremes if you want. Well, in a way, they're both about impacts, discerning, discerning impacts and creating pathways forward that make sense. I, yeah. Well, let's circle back to Ed Wilson. Okay. It, it's pretty clear to anyone working in, in extinction and endangered species and biodiversity conservation that the old formulations, the initial formulations <laughs> don't really work well. There's lots of papers that have come out recently still trying defending this idea of a big extinction pulse. Um, so given all of that, and to me, given some pretty deep uncertainty, which we still haven't hardly measured anything when we talk about biodiversity more effectively than when I was writing my book, The Burning Season <laughs> in 1989, talking to Terry Irwin, who, who uh, fogged a tree and got a thousand species of beetles out of it. So we, knowing what we don't know, knowing that the reality of the extent of extinction is still to be determined in whatever, or maybe never in, in human timescales, um, what do you do? So Sub-Saharan Africa, the Serengeti, uh, areas where cities are encroaching in uh, important landscapes, the Amazon, you know, we've already despoiled our North American region so fantastically, and so it's hard for us to say, you should do this. But you've got, let's talk about the Amazon. You, you, get, you had some time on the ground in Brazil. We do have Bolsonaro in power now, which has changed some dynamics. Uh, is it just sort of like saying the Amazon's not burning as much as it did in, 19, in the 1980s? Is, is not the end point. So, so what do we do now? What's the role of um, 
trade policy? What's the role of remote sensing? What's the role of empowering indigenous communities? Great, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the first thing I'm trying to do in both the Amazon and then, of course, the other place I spent a lot of time is the Albertine Rift, which is where the, the mountain gorillas are, it's where, the, where Homo sapiens evolved. Both are very special places in the book and they run through the book. The first thing I'm just trying to do is to show that the, the, degrada the degradation of, of natural environments and the killing of species and the, the, the risk of extinction are not being carried out by evil people who hate nature. It's often being carried out by people that are desperately poor, poor in ways that the, the young people who are alarmed by polar bears and plastic straws have no understanding of. And you, I know, understand it because you go to those places. So the first thing I want to do with Apocalypse Number is to bring my kids and kids my daughter's age, 14, 15, 16, I want to write in really simple stories, characters, and show what their struggles are. And so... You see in the Amazon chapter, I just object to this kind of elitist, literally looking down, flying over the Amazon, condemning the people on the ground for what they're doing. These are desperately poor people. I lived in communities of former slaves, um, or I'm sorry, the children of, of former slaves, the, uh, the, the descendants of former slaves in Brazil. Um, I point out that, yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly, we would all like to, all else being equal, we would like the Amazon forest to be intact. You know, all else being equal, I don't want any temperature change on Earth. We've adapted to this temperature, it's, but all else is not equal. You know, there's still two billion really poor people. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is so important. I had um, my um, uh, my main character on the Amazon, who now regrets having spoken to me because he spoke so freely, and I know you know him very well too, Dan Mepstad. He spoke so freely with me because he was upset, as I was, by the media coverage saying it's the lungs of the world. But he revealed this important thing, which is that in demanding small as beautiful conservation measures, Greenpeace um, forced the fragmentation of parts of the Amazon forest that should never have occurred. So what we know is that if you want to produce more food on less land, you need to concentrate agricultural production. You need to intensify it. Well, that should happen in the savanna region, which is known as the Sahadu, which is in the southern south of the Amazon forest. It's actually much more productive for agriculture. It's less biodiverse. Few ecologists think that it's the same as the Amazon forest. That would then allow you to protect more of the Amazon. But Greenpeace insisted that farmers maintain half of their land in forest. It ended up creating these forest islands that, that, you know, that make it more difficult for apex predators like big cats to move between them. So I think that was a very, very important finding. Now, if I can skip, if I go over to the Albertine Rift in Africa, the, my, the, some of the heroes of that chapter were also conservation scientists who had been working with oil companies to develop oil safely in national parks so that it could be used as a substitute for wood fuel. Wood fuel is the worst fuel. It's the fuel that disrupts forest life. It's, it's, I mean, Americans, we tend to pay attention to the millions of people who die from breathing toxic smoke, but the people that use wood fuel, what they complain about is the time it takes. And of course, the impact on forests is devastating to have hundreds or thousands of people going through the forest, eating wild animals and using the, the wood. So in both cases, I do think I'm arguing for a moderate view, which is to intensify agriculture in the savannas of, of, the, of Brazil, and, and to allow some, some extractive industry, particularly for petroleum in the Albertine Rift, so that people can be liberated from wood as fuel. 
Now, I, I wrote the book in part because if I just were to say on CNN or MSNBC, I think there should be oil drilling um, in Virunga National Park, I would be, I mean, I would be crucified for that. But once you read this book, I think it's very hard to read chapter four, which is the chapter about species extinction, and leave that chapter and think that somehow that it's wrong. How could it be wrong? I mean, I note that all the Americans and Europeans that are there flew there on jet planes and enjoy a petroleum powered lifestyle. So, and then the idea that petroleum drilling even in the Amazon or in, the, in these parks is worse than wood fuel is also wrong. Wood fuel is just massively worse for the natural environment than getting some oil out of the ground. So I think in, in, in sort of making that moderate case, that's what I'm arguing from, I'm arguing that there is a way to balance development and conservation, but we do need to have some appreciation of the importance of moving up the energy ladder and of the importance of growing more food on less land through concentrated uh, agriculture. Yeah, I did a lot of reporting on cooking fuel um, a couple of years ago when I was at ProPublica, and it was there the issue was um, antipathy for, in a lot of European funders to uh, supporting projects developing natural gas propane, LPG, which is a side product of natural gas production. And <laughs> the, the, there's, there's levels of hypocrisy here that are unbelievable. Norway uh, has a oil for development program that they fund to help countries in like Ghana develop their oil more practically. And so they won't spend money to help bring LPG to communities that are stuck burning wood. And I, so I'm with you on the, these levels of hypocrisy and doublespeak and clashing um, agendas. It's, it's around us in many different dimensions. Let's go, I wanna talk briefly about population and uh, growth. Uh, the, the one, this, the, 10 years ago, I wrote a piece in my daughter's blog at the Times, actually 12 years ago, drawing on a demographer, Joseph Chamis' work and on Jesse Asabel's work. And, and Jesse noted that the old model of the population bomb, as we both know, was total fizzle. But I called it a population cluster bomb, meaning that population growth, high fertility rates are devastating social and in some places environmental problem. Um, and I look at the numbers in, in uh, Nigeria, for example, it's heading toward a population of 750 million people, just Nigeria by 2070 yeah. or so. And it's, it's easy on a global scale to say, oh, population isn't a problem anymore. Just in recent weeks, there's been uh, a new study. There was a hyped report on depopulation that actually says we're going to have a reasonable population by the end of the century. But this population cluster bomb concept, what I, what I see missing, again, if you get these big cosmic arguments, you know, apocalypse, not apocalypse, they're missing these local contexts that can be so troubling. You know, as, as a, a six, uh, fertility rate of six is, tell me anywhere in the world where that's going to lead to good outcomes. So I, I don't know, is population an area where um, more work is needed as well in kind of getting a more nuanced approach or, or not? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, 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 I mean, obviously humans are having a huge impact on earth. <laughs> you know, there's so many of us. We have, you know, we all need food and energy. You do such a good job of describing the basic food energy population issue. So you sort of start with that. Um, 
you know, I think it would be, I, I think the, the main, the, the, the key thing I want to point out, though, is that what determines environmental impact is not so simple as just more people, right? It's depending on what those, so if you, if, if people live in apartment buildings and they, they produce, they consume their food out of high energy greenhouses and all of their electricity is from nuclear power plants, their footprint's tiny. Yeah. You know, if they incinerate all their waste or even landfill it in the United States, we don't need to worry about it. Your footprint's really small. Whereas like, you know, several thousands of families around Virunga National Park, again, in that central, that part of Africa we were talking about, using wood for fuel and eating wild animals can be devastating. I mean, the story I tell and I report out, it's original story, um, did a lot of work on it, um, is, that the, is that it appears that the park director in creating antagonism with the local communities um, created a backlash that may have killed 250 of the park's 300 elephants. Doesn't take a lot of people to kill that many elephants. Um, you know, so, so really when you're looking at impacts, I think, it's, um, I think it's easy to kind of go, one person is the same everywhere and it's clearly not. So that's just sort of the first thing. The second thing is that I totally agree. I mean, the, I, think that what, I think it's pretty clear. In fact, I believe that the UN demographers say this, that what will determine at what level the human population peaks and when it starts to go down is overwhelmingly what happens in sub-Saharan Africa. So I make the case for urbanization, industrialization, concentrated energy sources, concentrated food production in places like the Congo, in part so that we can take that pressure off of the park. I, I would like to see Virunga National Park continue to exist decades and centuries into the future. I would love to see the elephants come back. I wanna see, we could see, we could see the gorilla population increasing. You know, they're, they're considering darting some of those gorillas and actually helicoptering them to different habitats. So I think there's, I think you can be very ambitious when you have that vision. So then the question is, how do you do that? How do you get urbanization, industrialization? It's obviously a huge challenge because China totally dominates global manufacturing. But I point to Ethiopia, which has done what every poor country does. It dammed its rivers. It invited in H&M to have factories. I talk about how factories have been liberating for women, how they've, how they've been the driver of economic growth for, for poor people around the world for centuries. So for me, if you are worried about a lot of people in Nigeria, and definitely 750 million people in Nigeria sounds like a lot of people, then you should support industrialization and urbanization rather than oppose them. And I point out the ways in which many climate groups have been targeting fast fashion, meaning H&M, other, I guess, Gap and other other companies. And but when in fact H and M has been a really benevolent, um, uh, I don't say benevolent. It's been a, it's had a benevolent impact in its impact in terms of empowering women, creating jobs, and and moving people away from the farm where they have six to eight kids, where they have to have six to eight kids because that's their retirement. Those are their workers. So living in a city where they might have two to three kids. Um, both because it's hard to have a lot of kids in the city and because they don't want or need that many. So we have a few minutes left. Um, and there's, I want to circle back to Vaclav Shmiel, whose most recent book, uh, I got to show it, Growth, 200,000 words on growth. It kind of surprised me. I, you know, I've talked to him for 20 years now, and there always are these hints in his thinking. He's one of the most numerate analysts of, of global trends anywhere, as we both know. And 
he talks a lot about some of the intensification ideas you you described here along with Jesse Asabel. Um, but he, the book really says there are limits to growth. It says it's not the same articulation as the famous book of that title, but that we got, the world of 2050 can't be like the world today. And there are these limits in there. It's about environmental care, and uh, along with his sort of uber <laughs> quantified reality check on everything. What, do you have your own crystalline picture of growth as you see it and it, whether or not it has limits, what is that like? Just give me a thumbnail sketch of that concept of growth. And then the last thing would be environmental humanism, if we can save enough time for, um, to get your going away thought on that too. So what, let's just talk about growth first and then get to that closing thought. Well, and the two are related in that, so I'm a huge fan of Vaslav Smil. In fact, I rely heavily on many of his writings for the book. One of the things I set out to do for the book was to use as few of my own calculations as possible. I wanted to be able to refer people to other published scholars so there wouldn't be a debate about our own research. And so I rely heavily on Smeal's calculation of power density, which shows why moving towards up the energy ladder from wood to coal to natural gas to nuclear is the right path. Um, now that growth book, which of course I read and, and, and appreciate in so many ways, it's a fascinating book, he does the same thing that Malthusians have always done, which is he just asserts there's limits to growth. I mean, he's not providing very good mechanisms. I mean, I'm struck by there's one part where he talks about how devastating cities are. And he's got a good point, which is that cities are often built in these really fertile river and coastal landscapes that just get hammered by cities, right? I mean, this is the San Francisco Bay Area where I live or the Hudson Valley where you live. Um, it's just not what it was before humans were there. Okay, sure, but that's different from suggesting there's gonna be some kind of resource scarcity. So what is the source of the resource scarcity? I find that he does the same thing that Malthusians have often done, which is that he says, we're gonna have resource scarcity because certainly we couldn't use more nuclear energy, for example. Well, this is one of the most interesting things is that one of the things I discovered in the research for Apocalypse Never was that, that the people who say we're gonna run out of resources had to constantly attack the technologies that would allow for more resources. So Malthus, for example, said that we wouldn't be able to grow more food on less land, and we certainly shouldn't use contraception to have fewer kids. Malthusians in the 70s said um, we're going to run out of energy because we, because, um, or we can't have industrial farming in poor countries because we have limited fossil fuel resources. And now Malthusians say uh, we, we can't, uh, we're going to, run out of resources or can't solve climate change because we can't use nuclear energy, often they give weapons reasons, as does Vaslov, by the way. So I, I think that um, what I love about Vaslov is he shows that you can, you can combine in the same person of really disciplined science, but also somebody who I think comes from a certain amount of animus towards the human species. I, I, don't, I want to say this in the nicest way possible. Vaslov is one of the most refined every interaction with him I learned something I remember when yeah. he was interviewed by you he talked about how he was reading Zola you know like yeah. um, you know and he's um, he's an incredible scholar but I think he's hostile to humans in a fundamental way I think he really doesn't like he hates consumer culture I, I take some I think that the, the factory worker who I profile 
in Indonesia. She's, celeb- she's, she's a consumer and she's enjoying the fruits of prosperity. I think Vaslov looks at that as terrible. I see some amount of human liberation in that. Yeah. Well, we're down to here to the end. It's been a great hour talking with you, Michael. Um, much more to go over and going, and going forward, I'm sure. I'll try to have you on one of my conversations here at the Earth Institute soon, in person or otherwise. And your concept of environmental humanism, I think everyone is kind of grasping for that concept. Uh, I was at the Vatican in 2014. There's a meeting on sustainable humanity, sustainable nature. That, I think having open discussions about what that looks like, variegated views, response diversity is inevitable. Finding that space between arguments is, is important and conversation is a really important part of that. So thank you for having this conversation today. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.